You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. Did you enjoy dancing to that? That's kind of fun. It's a really fun video. Hey, if you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you. Thanks for choosing Labor Day weekend to be your first Sunday here. Uh, by the end of this, you'll wish you'd slept in, but um, no, I'm kidding. We're in a series called Relationship Status. We've been walking through the book Song of Songs, and what it has to do with is a guy named Solomon. He's an old king in ancient Israel, wisest man besides Jesus ever to walk the face of the earth. He wrote a 1,005 love songs, and this was his favorite. But what we're going to do today on Labor Day is we're actually pausing to lay a foundation that the rest of that series is going to stand on. And that foundation is really looking at the way the Bible views marriage and singleness in general. Where we are in the book in Songs of Solomon, is Song of Songs, is we're kind of turning this corner to really looking at they get married and they consummate the marriage and they got to deal with marital stress and strife. And so we're going to unpack that. And before we go into that phase of things, uh, I got really convicted this summer. We did a survey of our area. We just kind of drew a circle around Kingsway. And what we found out was 50%, almost, it was just under, it was like 49.5% of our community is single. Does that surprise you at all? I mean, it should uh, surprise you a little bit because a huge portion of that is like birth to 18-year-olds, and they should be single. And so when you take that portion out, it's hard to find what the exact number is. But we have a really high percentage of people around our church who are either unmarried, divorced, or widowed. And so what I wanted to do was pause for a minute and say, the Bible has a lot to say to this group. And it's not like, well, one day when you get married, because God may not be calling all people to get married. And so then what happened is while that was kicking around in my head, uh, as a leadership team, we went through this book right here. It's called The Healthy, Emotionally Healthy Leader. Highly recommend the book. You should probably pick it up, check it out sometime. Really, really good. They got a whole chapter, though, on serving the church if you're a Christian leader who's married and serving the church if you're a Christian leader who's single. And when I read the second half of that chapter, I got immediately convicted that I have failed the single people among us. I have not done a good enough job of teaching on the value of singlehood and how we ought to view this season of life. So that's really what today is all about. Now, if you're sitting there married going, Ugh, I could have slept in on Labor Day. This isn't for me. You're totally wrong. There's gonna be a couple two by fours for you today that you need to hear, right? And you're like, oh, now I even wanna be here even less. All right, so without any further ado, in the book, Pete Scazzaro, right here in this book, he makes this great quote. He says, every Christian has the same primary calling or vocation. We are called to Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. Our first call is to love him with our whole being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Biblical writers use many analogies to describe our relationship with God, either shepherd and sheep, congratulations, you're a sheep, master and slave, parent and child, but marriage is perhaps the most comprehensive and least inadequate. But that creates a conundrum, a little bit of a weird thing, at least if you're a man in the room. Because of this, here in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is approached by the Pharisees, and they ask this question, why is it we fast all the time, but your disciples, they don't fast at all? And Jesus' response is, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. What Jesus is saying, just to make it very, very simple, is Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride. So he's literally referring to his disciples as guests because one day there's going to be a 
big wedding celebration party between Jesus and the church. Okay, so why is that weird? Well, first of all, if I'm a guy, that means Jesus is going to marry me. And that makes any man who's really thinking through the implications of that uncomfortable. Like, I don't know if I signed up for that. And then it also makes another group uncomfortable. And that's any woman who's in a relationship with a man who was abusive to her. Whether it's emotionally or physically or spiritually. Because how can I trust Jesus to be any better or any different than what I've experienced? And Jesus isn't afraid to walk right into that mess and that awkwardness and just say, this is a reality of how things are. And so what I want to do today is for our time together, I want to unpack that for all of us. Because that's the root of whether you're married or whether you're single, you're here to serve Jesus. It's because of who Jesus is. And I, don't, I feel completely inadequate, <laughs> and I get paid to do this for a living, but I feel completely inadequate to paint for you the beauty of just how awesome Jesus is. So let's use his words, right? Revelation 21, verse 2. John is writing in Revelation, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So what we take away from this is, first of all, Jesus is a groom, right? The bride is his church, and the bride is beautifully adorned, dressed for him. If you've ever seen any wedding, you know exactly what this feels like. I carry around on the front of my phone, I got a picture of my wife on our wedding day. It's before the actual wedding. I hadn't seen her at that moment. She's just sitting with this big old smile on her face because she's marrying the greatest man that's ever walked face of the earth. And at least that's what goes through my mind when I see her smiling. And um, no, I'm serious. She's, she's just smiling and she's just happy as can be. She's got this beautiful white dress on. She's got her hair all done up and her makeup all done up. And it's just a, it's a fun picture for me to look at. Um, and I say that because that's exactly what Jesus has envisioned of his church. So see, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what's happened to you or what you've done, Jesus wants to change you so that on the day of the wedding feast, he will look at you and say, that's my bride. That's my beauty. That's my loved one. That's the one that I have done all of this for. We'll get to more of what all of this is. But it does create this situation. See, that is the root behind everything else I need to say to you. Because in the early church, they understood this. It's because of this that Jesus later is asked a question. He's given a scenario in this question that Jesus has asked. There's two major religious groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they debate about what a resurrection is or would look like or what will happen with it. And in this question, they think they set Jesus up. And so they tell him a story. Well, there, there's a man and he gets married and he dies. And the way the Old Testament says is, if a man dies and he doesn't have any children, then his next closest relative, next closest kin, it's called the kinsman redeemer, is supposed to marry her. So his brother marries her, but he doesn't have kids with her and he dies. And so the next brother marries her and he doesn't have kids with her, he dies. And he goes seven down the road. And then he says, well, when we get to heaven, who's gonna be married to her? It's like, ha, 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 we trapped you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, you guys, your problem is you don't know the scriptures. Like, this is the religious teachers of the day. Just like, you don't have a clue what the Bible actually says. In heaven, there's not gonna be any giving in marriage. And see, when you hear that at first, if you think marriage is everything, it's gonna shock you. What? Why would Jesus give us marriage if it's everything? And then in heaven, there's nothing. But the answer is because one day you will be married to Jesus forever. And he will be your all. But what does that mean for earth? 
Did you know that for the first thousand plus years of Christian history, singles were actually celebrated over married people? You wouldn't think that in the American church, would you? I love this quote from the book. Pete Scazzaro says, throughout the history of the church, Christians have tended to elevate the importance of one over the other. For the first 1500 years of the church, singleness was considered the preferred state and the best way to serve Christ. What? That's good. <laughs> yeah, I'll get there. All right, keep going. So he goes on, he says, single sat at the front of the church. Marriage were sent to the back. Things changed after the Reformation in 1517 when single people were sent to the back and marrieds moved to the front, at least among Protestants. And you know exactly what this is like, right? If you have any Catholic brothers or sisters, I have nuns in my family. They have now passed away to go be with Jesus, but they stayed single their entire life. And they were fully devoted to him and they are celebrated, right? In the Catholic church, uh, many of the Catholic church, right? Whether it's your priests or your nuns, they are single and they see themselves as married to Jesus. The irony is they're just starting what eternity is gonna look like now. And that's the point of all of this. Like, how do we make sure that we create a church that doesn't elevate married people and de-elevate single people? And I will just confess, I don't think I've done a great job with that and I'm sorry. I think we can do better. I really do think we could do better because the whole thing of what Jesus is trying to create in this thing called church, I didn't say this well last service, he's trying to create a new family where it doesn't matter whether you're married or single, widowed or divorced or whatever it is. What matters is your walk with Jesus in community with other people walking with Jesus. And what we tend to do in the American church is we segment and segregate people by likeness. It makes sense. If I'm gonna create new friendships, I'm probably gonna create them with people who are most like me, except for that's not the way Jesus envisioned church. The one conundrum that single people have, and this is why for centuries, almost every culture in the history of the world has had the same view of marriage. You need to be married, why? Because it propagates society. It's who you're gonna leave your inheritance to. You're building a good name. You're working hard so that you can do something and leave it behind to somebody. If you're single, who are you gonna leave it to? There's nobody to leave it to. That's the problem. But when we walk with Jesus, we go, that's not a problem because I am building the name of Jesus. I'm not building my name. And I'll leave the name of Jesus, the legacy of Jesus to the next generation who will pick up the mantle and carry the weight of the name of Jesus and hand it off to the next generation. That's why we're sitting here today about to celebrate our 50th anniversary because we picked up the mantle. Uh, others had built a name in the community. It's not about Kingsway, it's about the kingdom of God. And they handed it off to us. And one day, believe it or not, we're gonna hand it off to somebody else. And then they're gonna hand it off to somebody else. And they're gonna have somebody else until Jesus comes back. So it doesn't matter whether you're married or single. The whole goal is to find yourself in community with other people who are seeking after Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul deals with this, and he, has, he says way more than I have time to cover. So I'm gonna cover certain things. I wanna encourage you to go and, and, and read the rest of it for yourself, and then you can just wrestle with some stuff. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 32, he says this. I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. He's gonna go on to build on this. He talks about married women too, or unmarried women too. It's not just unmarried men. But the whole point is that married men have the ability to dedicate and focus their time and attention on the Lord and on his work. Now, years ago, when I was at my last church, um, my pastor brought in a guy to speak and he had been through a, a painful divorce, wasn't able to reconcile with his wife. And so my pastor had asked him to speak 
because of his experience, he could bring wisdom to people in our church who were just struggling with things in a way that my pastor wasn't able to speak to. And when he got done, he used this same 1 Corinthians 7 as his primary text. And when he got done speaking, I later talked to many of my single friends, and they were all over the map. Some unmarried, some divorced, some divorced remarried, some widowed, and they were all very angry at his message. And I thought, how is it possible that an entire message was given to help a group of people and they didn't feel helped at all? And one of them said to me, Matt, basically his message at the end of the day was, if you're married, praise God, but if you're single, you could give more of yourself to God and his kingdom. He said, that's great, except for basically what I heard is, burn yourself out serving the church. Married people have other responsibilities. And I thought, well, I didn't hear him say that. I, granted, some of the people in that group were bitter for a variety of reasons, and maybe he didn't say it right, or maybe they didn't hear it right, but let me just say, that is not what I am saying, and I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is very much clarified in the next verse. So here we go, verse 33. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And see, when you just read that on a surface level, it makes sense why you would feel that way. One of the ways that I try to serve my family, I said this before, is um, I try to put our kids to bed almost every night of the week. There's one night that is dedicated to my wife most of the time, and that's Saturday night. And on good Saturday nights, I'll pull out the sermon, and I'll start to look it over, and I go to bed, and it's kicking around in my head, and then I wake up Sunday morning, and I'm looking at it over, and I, I make lots of changes that irritate the team because I'm making all these last-minute changes, but it's just the way my brain is wired, and that's my rhythm for doing things. So last night, my wife, it's late at night. We watched a movie, and, and my wife's getting the kids ready for bed. It's kind of a chaotic moment, and I'm looking over the message, and I just read this passage, and I'm feeling very convicted by Paul in the moment. My wife walks by, and I say, hey, 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 real quick, real quick, real quick. I know you're in a hurry, but real quick, is there anything that I could do to please you? And she looks at me like I have three heads. And I said, no, 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 not like that, not like that. I mean, I, and probably what she's thinking is, yeah, not interrupting me trying to put the kids to bed to ask me this deep-thoughted question that you're thinking about and I'm not right now. And what she said to me was so wise. She said, I don't know, Nickerson. I need time to think about that. I was like, okay, fair enough. I don't know why I thought I'd get a great answer right now in this moment. Now, Here's a good question, though. Like What Paul is trying to get to is if I'm single, I don't have to think about my, my spouse and my kids and those other things that I have to think about. How do I get them to this sport or how do I get them to this program or, you know, they've got this thing going on this weekend and I got to help my spouse with that or, you know, they got a birthday party and I want to celebrate and honor them or, you know, all those things that come up. Instead, if I'm single, I can truly think about, like, what does God want from me and from my life this week, this month, this year? And those other hours that, that, that a married person has to spend thinking about how to please their spouse and, and get all the things done that the spouse has to get done should be freedom for me to be able to ponder the things of the Lord. Now, I may not use them that way. I might spend them selfishly or put them more into working and making more money and instead of thinking like, well, how can I make my workplace a place to be a pastor for Jesus? So a couple things. Number one, if I'm a married person, I think it would be a really good question for you to go home today and ask your spouse, is there 
anything that I could do that would please you. And then let them think about it and give you an answer. And let them be honest. And it'd be really helpful if you would put your dishes away instead of throwing them in the sink. It'd be really helpful if you take the trash out without me asking once in a while. And it'd be really helpful as if you were home on time when you said you would be. Or it'd be really helpful if you kept your word, did the things you told us you were gonna do, or stop watching the TV so much, or stop playing golf so much, or stop spending so much money. You know what would be really helpful is if we sat down and got our schedules on the same page. That would really please me in our marriage. Man, imagine a situation where you're doing that. One of my, uh, one of my greatest mentors of all time is a gentleman, I don't know exactly how old he is now, but he's in his mid-60s, and he's been single his whole life. Someday, I've thought about bringing him in to, to speak uh, to us. Um, just hasn't arranged yet. But he's got a story that goes to partly why he's single. But early in my marriage, um, my wife's husband was being difficult, and I needed help. <laughs> I like to say it that way. I feel, I feel like I'm off the hook. And uh, so I went to him. I was like, I'm stuck. I need help. I don't, I can't, we can't get over this hump. And I don't, I'm asking a single man. And he said to me, he said, you know, Matt, what would happen in your marriage if you and Rachel were to try to outserve each other? That's the best marital advice I've ever received my whole life. Now, where this breaks down is what happens if I'm in a marriage where I'm the only one serving, right? Instead of a give and a take back and forth, it's like I'm serving and this person's just taking, Right? And I've gotten some emails since we started this series from some people saying, that's me. Like, pastor, you talk about healthy marriages, you talk about healthy singlehood, but I'm in a marriage where I give and I give and I give and they take and they take and they take. So it sounds great to say, go home and ask, how can I please you? If I do that, it'll just be one more thing I give and one more thing they take. And I think that's actually exactly why Paul wrote this chapter. If you go read the whole chapter, because Paul is dealing with a very complex set of issues just like we have today. They're no different. Ancient Rome looks a lot like modern America. History is cyclical. And I say that because Paul's advice doesn't change just because of your situation. But you need the entire counsel of God's word, which is why I recommend you come back next week when maybe the message is more geared towards you or not. Because we need the entire counsel of God's word to guide and direct our lives. So let's just bring this home for just a moment. What Paul is simply trying to say is, if you're married, man or woman, try to be a person who gives and not just takes. Ask the question, how can I please you and make your life better? If you're a single person, start asking the same question of Jesus because he never just takes. He always asks, how can I help you? How can I come alongside you? How can I get this done with you, for you, through you? That's a game-changing question. Paul goes on in verse 35. He says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but you, you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That's his end game, that you will be fully connected to Jesus receiving from him what you need. Peter says it this way, and I think it's 1 Peter chapter one. I cannot remember the verse. I think it's verse 16. I said 13 last service. All that means is I don't know where it is. 1 Peter, Peter says this, you have everything you need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything, everything, everything. Married person, single person, 
widowed person, divorced person, everything you need is in Jesus. And here's, this is, I said this in a meeting, I don't know, six weeks ago, talking about this series, talking about this sermon. And so I, I, I didn't want to share it. I was actually anxious to share it in that meeting. And, uh, but that, after I shared it there, I was like, okay, I'd probably say this. Nobody, nobody condemned me for feeling this way, all right? I get paid to be good. <laughs> I get paid to know all the answers. I get paid to be deeply connected to Jesus. But I still sometimes hear Jesus whispering to me, I have more for you. I want you to know me deeper than you do right now. I want you to experience my love on a more profound level than you're experiencing it now. I want you to rest in my provision even more than you do now. And I can't help but wonder, like, Jesus, he is real. He's alive. He's in heaven, but he's watching over us. He's intimately aware of everything happening in your life, everything happening. And I keep sensing, yeah, thank you. You stop giving God the glory. I keep sensing that he wants to be more connected to my life than I often will let him be. And I feel guilty saying that. But sometimes I feel like with Jesus, like I'm afraid of him because he's so big and he's so awesome. And it's like, yes, I really want you in a place, in a pace that I can manage and control. And as long as I stay the leader of this thing, we're gonna have a great relationship, Jesus. And he keeps saying, no, we aren't. <laughs> and I just wonder whether you're single or whether you're married, but especially if you're single, what if that's what he wants for you to say, look, you have no idea how much I long to take care of you and provide for you and to please you and to love you and to serve you and to do what you need done. I actually think that's exactly Paul's point in Ephesians 5. This is a great passage for marriage, but hear what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives. What's the phrase there though? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Let's just stop there for a second. That's a whole sermon. I've done an entire series based around that one passage. But the whole point is how Jesus loves his church, his bride. His whole goal is I'm gonna give up me to serve her. Now, that doesn't mean he's not gonna call you to follow him and to let him be Lord and leader of your life. He's gonna call you to live the life he's asking you to live, but he does it from a place of service, of giving himself up to care for you. Is there any area of your life where you won't let Jesus care for you because you're handling it on your own? He goes on, he says, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. I don't think this is a baptism reference, though it's applicable, but if you just take something that's dirty, what do you do with it? You wash it. And so the way that Jesus washes us clean is through his word. That's this book right here. It's through the, what we call the entire counsel, God's entire wisdom. He wrote it down. He didn't make it unclear what he longs for us to do. I get it. It's confusing at times. I don't know what to do with it. That's why I study it so I can help give it to you so you can go give it to others because it's through this book that God longs to wash us clean, to change the way that we see him and the way that we see the world, to change the way that we interact at work, at home life, at school life, in every facet of our life, to do the thing that isn't common or popular to do because nobody wants to forgive when it's easier to be angry and to carry out justice. Nobody wants to repent when it's easier to hide in secrecy. But Jesus says, I want to transform you through who I am in your life. And that's exactly what he's doing to all of us, his bride. He's literally meeting our needs. It's just that our needs aren't always what we thought that they were. But then the reason, the outcome is so that he can present us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So that when Jesus looks at you, you know what he doesn't see? He doesn't see your past. 
He doesn't see your worst day. He doesn't see your most embarrassing and shameful and painful moment. He sees a glorious, beautiful bride. Yeah. I love that you guys keep clapping for Jesus. I'm gonna pause just every few seconds. I'm kidding, all right, all right, all right. But he goes on, he says in verse 25, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Okay, so he who loves his wife loves himself. Well, today's not really about marriage, but I'd be a fool to not at least put that one out there and ask the question, are you loving your bride, men, the way that Jesus loves you? And if not, it's a great chance to reset things. So let's build a foundation real quick. In Matthew chapter 19, there's this whole thing going on, and uh, Jesus is being asked hard questions about divorce and other things, and he just answers the question very openly and honestly, but then he makes this profound statement. He says this, Matthew chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus replies to them, not everybody can accept this word, what I'm about to say. Not everybody can accept this, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. The one who can accept this should accept it. If you don't know what a eunuch is, this gets really awkward. I'm sitting in Acts class, and I'm next to my buddy, and we're kind of the sarcastic type. And uh, this poor, sweet girl in front of us, as we're talking through eunuchs of the book of Acts, and this eunuch gets baptized, and, and she innocently raises her hand, and she says, I don't understand. Why is this such a big deal? And now we're laughing already because we're watching our professor do what I get to do for you. And my professor, uh, Dr. John Weatherly, he said something like, um, well, how do I say this? Uh, well, see, eunuchs had been cut off from Jewish society, and I lost it. <laughs> Nobody else in the room got it except for me. He didn't mean it like that. And he went, no, 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 I don't mean that. I mean, okay, so uh, eunuchs, there's different kinds of eunuchs, but generally speaking, they have been castrated. Uh, their privates were either crushed or removed or parts of it or they weren't functioning. Something was broken there. Is that clear enough? Can we move on? This is awkward. Okay. And there's a lot of reasons why, but it's really important because, see, eunuchs then didn't have a place in the society because they couldn't leave a legacy, they couldn't get married, they, couldn't, they, had, they didn't have social status in that way. So it's interesting then that Jesus takes that very analogy and says, in the kingdom of God, these people who don't have social status are gonna have profound social status in the kingdom of God. But then he gives us three ways that you could become one of these people. You could be born that way. Well, how could you be born a eunuch? I don't think you should ask this question literally, though it would apply literally. I think you should ask it bigger than that. There are some people, and you know some, and they're probably never gonna get married. And there might be a variety of reasons why. Maybe they don't desire to get married. Maybe they're not desirable for marriage. Maybe there's some physical or mental disability that has left them in a place where they're just never gonna get married. But what Jesus says is in the kingdom of God, they will be special. They will be no less than anybody else. Secondly, some will be made this way by others. I mean, you could think of a variety, like perhaps a profound accident, perhaps a painful divorce, perhaps a terrible, evil decision of trauma, like my friend that I referenced earlier in his childhood. Or some of them will actually just choose this for the kingdom of God because they'll realize 
that as long as they, if they get married, they will be divided between God and the world. But if they stay single, they'll be more of themselves to focus on God's kingdom or whatever he desires for this world. But do you see how Jesus celebrates all three? He doesn't denigrate any of them. Whoever can accept this teaching should. This is why the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church has done such a great job of highlighting men and women who say, I think God's called me to be single. It's also created a conundrum because they've made it so the only way you could be a priest or a nun is to be single, and then you end up with people who do evil things. But it's that tension that I want Kingsway to live in of it's okay if you're single and it's okay if you're married because the whole point is that you're walking with Jesus. Because marriage is intended to be a math equation. Here's the math equation. This is why I'm bad at math, right? Because there's no math in Bible college. But it's one whole person plus one whole person equals one new person. That's like if you grew up in Kentucky. That's like what they taught you <laughs> math looked like. I love you, honey. Listen, this is, this is Bible math. The two shall become one flesh. I didn't make this up. One whole person plus one whole person equals one new person. Now, what we tend to do, do you remember that movie? Like, if you're under 30, you probably don't know what I'm referencing. But do you remember the movie with Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, right? And he busts into the room, and I think he's dripping wet or whatever, and he says, you, you see, third of the room is over 30. Okay. <laughs> you complete me. That is terrible marriage advice. Because if your view of marriage is, I'm a half person, and I'm going to marry a half person, and together we'll make a whole person, then what happens when that half is removed? What happens when that half is acting in sin? What happens when that half gets in an accident and can no longer carry the weight of the marriage relationship? But see, if I am a whole person, because Jesus is everything I need and I'm walking with Jesus and I marry a whole person and they're walking with Jesus and they're everything, they have everything they need through him too, that together we're gonna have everything we need. Now here's the thing, if I'm single, I'm already a whole person because I've got Jesus and everything I need. I don't need you, I get to have you. You're a huge blessing in my life. I love you, you're awesome, you're amazing. I want you, I wanna do the life with you. Let's build this family and blow this thing out together. It'd be amazing what we could do together. We'll go further together than we will alone, but also I'm whole. See, what we don't wanna do is go like, you know, I'm a half person. If I could just find a quarter person, I think I'd be good, we'll make it work. Jesus will fill the gap. One plus one makes one. That's why Paul goes on, chapter seven, verse eight. He says, um, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. Wait a minute, Paul was unmarried? His entire life, as far as we know. Jesus was unmarried? As far as we know, um, you know, Ruth had been, uh, her husband passed. John the Baptist was unmarried. Anna, the prophetess, was unmarried. The Bible is full of great men and women who were unmarried. Tons of them did great things. You wouldn't have your Bible today if it weren't for those men and women. But he says, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. <laughs> for it'd be better to marry than to burn with passion. So I don't believe this burn is a reference to hell. But the analogy of hell lays in the background. So what I do think this means is, look, if you're single and you can't control yourself, you're just struggling and failing over and over again, you should probably have the view of getting married. You should probably look toward marriage. That should be your end game. Start preparing yourself for that day. 
because it's better to get married and then to try to be a hero. That's what he's trying to get to. So I'm encouraging you to be single, but if you're the kind of person that's like, it's not gonna go well for me, get married. So in the book, uh, Pete Scazzaro lays out two categories of single people. And here's what I want our single people. So I charge, challenge married people in the room earlier, like ask, how do I please my spouse? Here's your challenge, okay? There's only two categories. There's not a third category. Which one of these two is you? The first category is what he calls a vowed celibate. These are individuals who make lifelong vows to remain single and maintain lifelong sexual abstinence as a means of living out their commitment to Christ. They do this freely in response to a God-given gift of grace. Like I realize that this is God's calling and so God is gonna carry me and Jesus is gonna be married to me now. Then he goes on, he says, today we are perhaps most familiar with vowed celibates. These are nuns and priests in the Roman Catholic or Orthodox Church. These celibates vowed to forego earthly marriage in order to participate more fully in the heavenly reality that is eternal union with Christ. The second category is what he calls dedicated celibates. These are singles who have not necessarily made a lifelong vow to remain single, but who choose to remain sexually abstinent for as long as they are single. Their commitment to celibacy is an expression of their commitment to Christ. He goes on, many desire to marry or are open to the possibility. They may have not yet met the right person or are postponing marriage to pursue a career or additional education. They may be single because of divorce or the death of a spouse. You don't have to raise your hand, but which one are you? Which one is God calling you to? And it's okay to change your mind later, but if you don't have a goal in mind today, then you'll just become a part of this hookup culture that we have today. And the hookup culture says, there's a third category. I'll just sleep with who I want when I want until I find the one I want. Except for that perspective never leads where God's calling you to go. So let me close with Paul's words. And um, this is gonna get uh, really, really helpful, but I gotta unpack it all because he says some weird things and then he clarifies, okay? First Corinthians 7, Paul goes on, he says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. So Kingsway is no different. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So what he's saying, and this is where it gets weird before I explain, what he's saying is, if you come to God and you're married, stay married. Whether you're married to an unbeliever or a believer, stay there. He goes on, he says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they leave you, you're free to get remarried. He then also says, if you're single and you come to God and you're single, stay that way. But again, put that other piece of advice in there. But what if you can't control yourself? Well, then you should get married. It'd be better than staying single and burning in passion, right? That's where we put this together. But it seems like weird advice. Why is Paul saying that we should stay single if, if we're single instead of trying to get married? But here's the reason why. He goes on in verse 29. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. If you just focus on this verse for a minute, what Paul is trying to say is he's talking about an overlap of the ages. 
The Old Testament told us that when Messiah came, he would establish a new kingdom, a new rule, a new reign, and everything would be different and evil would be removed from this world. And Jesus began that process in something called the church, but it hasn't been completed until he comes back the second time. We're waiting for him to come back and complete the process. So what he's trying to encourage is in the now, while we wait for the then to come, we live with heaven in mind. That's why everything else he says makes sense. Think about it. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. So he wants all of us who are married. He just told us, if you're married, think about pleasing your wife. Now stop pleasing them. No, 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 no. He's saying, think about the fact that one day Jesus is gonna return. I got married at 22. Let's just say I live till I'm 82. That's 60 years. Paul's saying, consider the fact that your 60 years on earth is tiny compared to the length of eternity. Keep eternal perspective and live life here wisely while you're here. Everything else is in that light. Those who mourn as if they did not, Paul tells us we celebrate with those celebrate and mourn with those who mourn. Look, Paul keeps contradicting himself. No, 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 no. He's saying if you lost a spouse and you're now a widow, you lost a loved one and you're now grieving that, absolutely grieve it, mourn it. It's painful, it's terrible, but do it in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back and he's bringing a new kingdom with him when he comes. So we grieve in light of eternity. This world is not our home. It's not the end of the story. We do everything with eternal perspective. Keep going. Those who are happy as if they were not. Why? Because the things of earth cannot fully satisfy. Let your happiness come. Let it feel good for a moment, but keep eternal perspective. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, don't buy that boat, don't buy that car, don't buy the house thinking, mine, mine. No, 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 no. Buy it all with the eternal perspective. One day Jesus could come back and it's all going to burn. It's all going to go to waste. It's all nothing in the long run. How do I keep God's perspective about everyday life? Those are you things of the world, if as if not engrossed in them, for this world and its present form is passing away. So let's have eternal perspective about singlehood and marriage and things and jobs and schools and life. And remember that God is at work. This world is his, but it's not our home. We're gonna go home one day and leave all of this behind. So in this blip of time that you have left before your life comes to an end, how do I live with the awareness that Jesus is with me and for me and loves me and desires for me to walk with him and know him and trust him more and more? Let me pray over us. God, Thank you for the hard teaching of your word that calls all of us out and up to a higher level. I just wanna pray first of all, God, I have some people in my heart that I've talked to and know, some single people, God. I have some single friends, they just so want to be married, however they got there. (laughs) And it just hasn't happened. Or it hasn't happened in a way that truly is the way that we're talking about. It's not been satisfactory. Their spouse was evil or mean or cruel. God, I just pray you would meet them right now. You know, every single one of them and then some that I don't know, would you just meet them and love them and care for them and wrap them in your big old arms, the arms of a father, the arms of a husband. Just hold them tight. Comfort them, encourage them. God, I pray for every married person in this room that especially the married people right now who are in a marriage where they're all the giving and the spouse is all the taking. 
God, I pray that you would give them the, the wisdom, the comfort, the strength to continue to be Jesus to their spouse, even in spite of the way the marriage looks today. And God, may you reward that faithfulness, but may you carry them in the hard days when they wanna quit. God, I pray for the married person in this room right now, God, who's just, they're trying to figure it out and they're trying to figure out how to walk with you and honor you. God, I pray you'd give them a word. May they have great hard conversation. What can I do to help you, to serve you, to please you, to love you? What can I do to come alongside you in this? And God, I pray that with humility, they'd receive whatever came back at them, whatever comes back at them, and that God, they would step into it, do something about it. And God, I pray you would look down at Kingsway Christian Church and see a whole and healthy church who loves you and longs to please you. We ask all this in Jesus' name.